0: Amen and amen. I pray that you were blessed. I know I was worshiping here uh, in a nearly empty sanctuary, but I trust that the sanctuary of your heart is filled with the goodness of the Lord. I want to just encourage you to be patient and uh, hang in there. God does have a plan in all of this. Uh, It's an interesting thing that we have our normal uh, busy week of the summer, 4th of July this week, with no celebrations, with no picnics, no barbecues, uh, no fireworks, none of the things that we're normally used to. So I want to strongly encourage you uh, to let your fireworks be the Lord this week and be really thankful for the country that we live in, in spite of all that we're going through. Uh, there's no place I'd rather live than here. Uh, And in spite of all the difficulties and the hardships that we're faced with right now, uh, this country is still one of the last bastions of Christian belief that's left in our world. And so I pray uh, that you won't let the enemy get you down uh, in spite of the fact that we live in a world that is upside down. And that just happens to be uh, the title of our message tonight an upside-down world. If you turn to Isaiah 24, Isaiah now is going to begin a series of four chapters. And here in chapter 24, he begins this little run after prophesying over 11 different nations. He's now going to turn his attention to the very last days, to a time that is still yet future to us tonight. But he's going to give us some information well ahead of the events. In his case, uh, he would have been speaking, if he were speaking of tonight or next week, he would have been looking ahead 2,700 years or so. And so he's previewing this storm that's going to come, what's going to happen on the earth. And it's interesting to me uh, that he does present this picture of a, of a world that's upside down, where the world uh, is turned on its head to where we who are on it Uh, would be calling evil good and good evil. And certainly we can see that in our day and time, uh, if we were ever closer to the end than the beginning, I I believe it's now. And so let's pray. We'll pick up here uh, in verse 1 of Isaiah 24. Father, we have come, Lord, in our living rooms, in our backyards, uh, maybe in our cars or our trucks. Lord, parked along the road somewhere in a semi watching on a television. Uh, We've come because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords spoke through the prophet Isaiah some 2,700 years ago, words that are true today. And we pray that you'd take your word and cause it to bear fruit in our lives, that we'd see the world the way you intend us to see it, that our hope is not in this world, because we as your children are not of this world. And so we pray that you would speak loudly and clearly through your word. Encourage us, strengthen us to hear uh, those parts that will challenge us. Uh, Sometimes, Lord, the best thing you can do is to shake up our world, and you're doing that right now, and we just thank you for what you're going to do, even in our difficult times. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Isaiah 24, behold... The Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. Now, it's really interesting as you look at this, and we're going to see this word uh, earth more than 30 times over the next couple of chapters. And it's the Hebrew word Eretz. And it's defined by context as whether it might mean a city, a field, or those types of things. And so it's very clear that in this context, it's talking about the entirety of the earth. These are global things. That Isaiah now turns his attention to the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah, speaks of an emptying of the earth and making it waste, and in fact, distorting its surface. And so he's not talking about a town, he's not talking about a farm field, he's talking about the earth itself, and scatters abroad its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. For the land shall be entirely emptied, utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. Now I want you to notice something. There's an, there's an equivalence that's made it draws attention to basically all of humankind. It doesn't matter where you are on the life spectrum. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether you're the person in charge or the person that's taking orders. It doesn't matter whether you're in government or whether you're just a person who uh, makes a living and pays taxes. It is clearly that there's going to come a point in time on this earth when everyone is going to be in the same boat. Now in our day and time, of course, we hear constantly and frequently about the levels of society and we, we have this phrase that we use, the 1%, which is supposed to describe uh, the most wealthy people in our country and how they are advantaged and others are disadvantaged. And while in today's time in the economy and the dispensation of today, uh, that is true. There are people who are certainly more wealthy than others, and certainly those who are more poor. There are those who have and those who have not. There are those who are healthy and those who are unhealthy. There are people in every different type of category that one would care to put them in. And in fact, socialism itself attempts to categorize people in those categories for the sake of defining, in essence, who they are. And we're even attempting to do that in our day and time. But I want you to notice something. There's going to come a point in time when God deals with the entirety of the the earth and it won't matter what category you are in. And in light of this, as, as this global judgment is about to be pronounced over these next four chapters, what God is going to do in the very last days, and as he's going to restore national Israel, as he will deal finally with that promise that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 11, that one day all Israel would be saved. While he's doing that, he's also going to now, Isaiah will focus on the reason why that's going to happen. Why is it that God in a day in time that we call the day of the Lord, in a day in time that we call the time of Jacob's trouble, in a day and a time that we call the tribulation, and a day in time that we call the great tribulation, those very last days that will include things like the battle of Armageddon, followed by the millennial reign, the thousand years that Christ reigns on this earth, the second coming of the Lord. Why is it that God is going to finally usher that in? Because you would think man's done plenty up to this point to warrant that coming about today. And I believe that that's actually to some degree true. But Isaiah's going to make some declarations here and he's going to tell us really why this is going to happen. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of the world being sick. I'm, I look at the world and I, I wonder why tonight It it seems like the wicked prosper. It seems like people who shouldn't be in charge are in charge. It it seems like those who practice righteousness are mocked and scorned, laughed at. It, It seems like things are already upside down. But from the Bible's perspective, things are going to get more upside down than they are right now. And that would make the earth very upside down. And so to that end, I, I think it would be helpful to have a little bit of an overview uh, as, before we dig into this chapter with some, with some meatiness. One day the Lord is going to judge his enemies. We, we saw the, the setup for that in the previous chapter. There, in chapter 23. We know that he's righteous. We know that he judges all things. He doesn't miss anything. And that in history past, God has not allowed evil to continue indefinitely. And the first place that we see that really is in the book of Genesis. And so in the book of Genesis, you have the story of this couple, Adam and Eve. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And before the sons are very old, we have the first murder. Before Adam and Eve even leave the garden, they sin, bringing about the curse that is now upon the entire world and setting in motion what is most easily seen in the second law of thermodynamics, that all things tend to decay. That includes humankind. That's the world itself. That's actually the universe. Things that were made are spinning towards their conclusion, towards their end. And so humankind, just a probably a hundred generations or less, and and humankind turns this corner to where God has to confuse the language of all the people on the earth because if they continue the way they're going, they're going to try and build this tower up to God. We see that in Genesis chapter 11. Prior to that, God judges the whole world in Genesis chapter seven eight and nine. And this catastrophic flood comes upon the earth. And so God has always looked at humankind's time on this earth and said, I'm only going to let you go so far. And then I'm going to step into your time and I'm going to do something about what's going on here. Because if I allow this to go too far, it's going to result in really horrible things happening. And so as we look at God's character and we look at God's nature, nowhere in the Bible do we see that character and that nature ever changing. And in fact, the Bible itself states clearly that I, the Lord, change not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God can't have in time past looked at the earth and said, that's too far, and stepped into time and done something like the flood, or something like scattering all of the nations of the earth at the Tower of Babel, or like sending the children of Israel into the wilderness only to have Moses die and be buried on Mount Mount Nebo, we can't see the children of Israel go into the land, possess the promised land that God gave to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, the descendants of Abraham, and God then punished the children of Israel for their repeated forays into evil, and think that ultimately God is now going to turn a blind eye on his kids by grace, or that he is not going to fulfill all that he promised to the children of Israel. Because part of the Abrahamic covenant was that I will make you a great people. I will make you more numerous than the sands of the sea that I will give you a land that will be your inheritance perpetually, which they only occupy a little tiny part of that today. And so God, in his wonderful sovereign plan, has given us some insight as to why he is going to, at some point in time, deal with the sin of mankind. Because let's face it, man's not done a great job of being a steward of this earth, and man has certainly mistreated man, and most importantly, mankind has hated the Jewish people since day one. Now, that's, of course, not all of us. Certainly not me. It's not this church. But a vast majority of the world still to this day despises Israel. If you look at the record of the UN, they spend about 30% of their time in some way, shape, or form, negotiating things that have to do with Israel, one of the world's tiniest nations, a nation with a scant nine million people. We have more people in Los Angeles than live in all of Israel. Why would God punish the inhabitants of the world? What is it that would set him off, so to speak, bring about that time that the Bible declares is the time of Jacob's? trouble, the tribulation. Joel chapter 3 gives us insight. For behold, verse 1 says, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, now interesting, you, you could have looked at the time that Joel wrote, which is contemporaneous with the prophets Hosea and Amos. Jeremiah and Isaiah, writing at roughly the same time. Perhaps Joel was a little earlier. When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, remember that the children of Israel, when they were in the land, were two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel or Ephraim. The southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom was wiped out. And all that was left was Judah and their capital city, Jerusalem. So this is speaking of the remnant of the people that used to be called Israel and Judah. God's chosen people, the people of the covenant. And so this is all that's left of them. We have that group still available on this earth, and they are all that there is. The temple records were destroyed when Titus raised the Temple Mount in AD 70. There are no records of family lineage, the records that were held in the Sanhedrin. The temple itself destroyed and pushed into the Kidron Valley, the Hinnom Valley to the south. But it says, I will bring back those captives. Interesting that Israel is back in their own land and have been since 1948, May 14th. And I will also gather all nations. Interesting phraseology here because it says all nations. And the original language actually means all nations as in the same earth that's being spoken of uh, here in Isaiah chapter 24. And bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's an interesting name. It's the valley that actually contains the tombs. Uh, actually Absalom's tomb is in what is known affectionately as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's a valley that's the confluence. It's where the Brook Kidron and the Hinnom stream uh, meet. It's just to the south and to the east of Jerusalem. If you were to follow that stream, it actually eventually will lead you all the way to the Dead Sea. But I'll bring them there to that valley. Who? All of the nations of the earth. And I will enter into judgment with them. In that spot there. Then Joel tells us why. On account of my people, my heritage, Israel. Whom they have scattered among the nations. So the first thing that Joel says is the reason that God is going to gather in that final battle, all the nations of the earth, a battle that we call from the book of Revelation, the battle of Armageddon, har is because of what they've done, who? All the people, the people of the earth, scattering Israel to the four winds. A second thing, they've also divided up my land. You see, some people mistakenly call Israel Israel's land, or they call it Palestine, or they call it the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. But from God's perspective, he made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, and that everlasting covenant, part of it was land. And that land is actually not Israel's land, it's God's land. And God gave it to Israel as a perpetual inheritance, wherein if they were to abide in that land, by his rules, in his obedience, that they would possess it in blessing. And so as they enter into the land, they go to this place called Shechem. There are two hills, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And, and God says, look, choose between these two mountains. Do you want blessings, in obedience, or do you want curses and disobedience? And the children of Israel, nearly 50% of them chose one side or, or the other. Some of them remained neutral, but they basically said, well, we don't really know. Obedience, disobedience, do we want blessings or curses? And God never took away all the land. And so it says, the reason that the nations of the earth will be gathered together in the Valley of Jehoshaphat is because of the scattering of God's heritage, Israel, God's people scattered amongst the nations, and that people divided up God's land. One of the tremendous difficulties that we face right now in global politics is what to do with Israel with what most people call the Palestinian problem. You see, for God, it's not a Palestinian problem because the land doesn't belong to Israel, it belongs to God. And God gave it to Israel. And so from God's perspective, there's only supposed to be one group of people who inhabit that land, and that's the Jewish people. The Jewish people are supposed to live at peace with those that are there. So they should be able to live at peace with the Palestinians. There shouldn't be a Palestinian state. There should be Israel. And in fact, that land should actually be infinitely larger. It should go back past the Balfour mandate. It should include most of what is now called Jordan, most of what is called Syria, all of what is called Lebanon part of what is called the northern part of Egypt and part of Saudi Arabia. That would be the actual land. In fact, it would go all the way to the great river Euphrates. So from God's perspective, he says, you know, this whole thing of you dividing up the land and cutting out my people, I'm not okay with that. Notice the third thing, verse 3. They have cast lots for my people given a boy as a payment for a harlot, sold a girl for wine that they may drink. The mistreatment of the Jewish people, the dividing up of the land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the fact that the Jewish people were scattered to the four winds is the reason, it's the trigger, ultimately, for God saying, enough. So the worse that situation gets, the closer we are to the end. And so as we sit here tonight, Where are we? Well, we've gone a long ways down the road. We see man's greed. We see people continually. It's mind-boggling to me that we, we sit in our country today and where's the outcry for what happened to the Jewish people? There should be outcry for injustice to all peoples. But it's interesting that there's rarely an outcry for what happens to the Jewish people. That's a problem for God. He's told us that in his word. He says, one day I'm going to have enough of that. For centuries, mankind has polluted this world by disobeying God's laws, violating His statutes. And before you, you know, say, well, Jeff, that's a, that's a Christian thing. While it is true it is a Christian thing ultimately because we have the Spirit of the Living God dwelling in us, it is not a Christian thing insofar as what the Bible describes. Because Romans chapter one, verses eighteen, really to about the sixteenth verse of chapter two is very clear. And I and I want to I was rereading this earlier today. I want to show this to you. Verse 18 says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Doesn't say of Christians, doesn't say of Israelites, it says of men in general who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. In other words, internally in every human being is a manifest understanding of who God is. No person is ignorant of understanding who God is. The Bible clearly says that all people understand God. We have a hole in there. Why? For God has shown it to them. People often say, well, you know, that person's never been to church, or they didn't hear this, they didn't hear that. That is no excuse as far as the Bible is concerned. Because internally, every human being has been given an understanding of God. Now check this out. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. In other words, you could look at the creation and go, hmm, wonder who made that? How did that get here? Instead, we attribute that to goo to you, monkeys to man. Notice what else it says. Being understood by the things that are made, even, check this out, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are, underline it, without excuse. Who's the they? Every living, breathing human being. Everyone. No one has an excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him. Nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts. In their foolish hearts, they were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. And therefore, verse 24, God also gave them over to uncleanness lust in their hearts, to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. And you can go on and read the rest of it all the way through the middle of chapter 2. That's the reason God gave mankind over to these passions. He says, look, I'm not going to force you to be blessed. You know who I am. You can look at the stars and you can go, mm, I wonder how this got there. You can look at the creation itself and go, there's something behind that. You can look at the intricate amount of design that is in the creation itself. You can wonder and go, there's got to be something behind that. This did not create itself. Any person that believes we actually came from blue-green algae has way more faith than I do to believe in God. Somebody who thinks the universe got here by a massive explosion and a small thing called the singularity at some point, some 16, you know, probably 13 to 15 billion years ago currently, but verging on 16 to 17 because they keep changing the date because there's not enough time in the universe to allow for evolution. If you believe that, you have more faith than I do. I simply look at it and go there's so much order there out of chaos, it's got to be something bigger than me. So what God says is, I put it in you to understand, to look for me. So there's a reason that God holds us accountable. There's a reason that God holds all of humankind accountable. Not just Christians. Everyone. There was a reason for the flood. What was that reason? Genesis 6 tells us, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. Verse 11 says the earth was also corrupt before God and it was filled with violence. So when you see a violent earth, a corrupt earth, an anti-God earth, God has repeatedly stepped into that period of time and gone, I'm not having that anymore. That's not going to work for me. And now you put the timing for the very last days in there, which is national Israel, them being regathered to the land, having been scattered to the four corners of the earth, been mistreated and the land itself divided, And you probably ought to be looking up to heaven tonight. You probably ought to be looking for the soon coming king. You see, the truth is, mankind's a mess. God made an everlasting covenant. God said, Look, this is what I want to do for you. God spoke to Noah, and we're going to see this in verse 5 here in a moment. But God spoke to Noah and said, look, I'm going to give you the details of this. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to ever destroy the earth again. But he didn't say a thing about people. He said, the earth I'm going to spare. Puts a rainbow in the sky, that's been co-opted. Basically, God is saying, look, when the world becomes so treacherous, is continually evil, it takes, it takes advantage of other humans, there's injustice, there's violence, and you mistreat Israel, you better start looking up. And so God is going to one day judge the earth. And so God tells us this through the prophet Isaiah. He, he doesn't hold it back. He, he doesn't say, look, well, you know, I might, I might not. He says, look, trouble's coming. When you read the the book of Revelation, and you get to chapter 6, and you realize that no matter where the unsaved people go, that they will not be able to hide from the wrath of God because God is going to pour his wrath out on this earth. The day of the Lord that Jesus in Matthew 24 said is going to come, God is going to begin to shake this earth like it's never been shaken before. In that time, God's always saved his own people. He's always saved the remnant, whether it was righteous Israel or righteous believers in the church or a combination of those two for wherever you have named the name of the Lord, you're in the kingdom. If you have believed on his name and you are saved, Jesus Christ is your Lord You're fine. You're good. But the day of the Lord's coming. And so this chapter lays out these things that are going to come. These visitations of God's judgment against sin. These final skirmishes when God says, look, I'm going to put down the devil. He's he's going down. You know, right now, you probably think the devil lives here in L.A. If we get shut back in one more time... Who knows what's going to happen? You might think that. But I'm here to tell you tonight, God's got this under control. And one day the devil's going to get his due. Yes, the Antichrist is going to rise, and he's going to go into the pit as well. And every demon is going to go in with him. Every evil and vile thing that exalts itself against the name of the Lord, God knows exactly where every one of those things are. Every one of those beings are. And he is going to deal with them finitely, and he's going to wipe out sin once and for all. He's going to take care of it. You see, but in this age of grace, God's given us a way to be cleansed of our sin, to be forgiven, to walk in righteousness before a holy God but it requires action on people's part. I can't claim God's grace and then live the way I want to live. If I claim God's grace, then my life will change, and I will be like the children of Israel before Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and I want to choose a life of blessings. That means being obedient to the things that God said. But if I choose the life of cursing, if I refuse to live in Shechem, If I'm not going to walk after the Lord, if I'm not going to do what the Word says, then I'm placing myself in league with those people that God says, ultimately, he's going to have to deal with personally. He's going to take care of it. And so chapter 24 is this picture of God Beginning this process of dealing with mankind on this earth. And so the first thing that we see is God says some things that we've never seen before. He's going to literally purge the earth of much of its inhabitants, He's going to make the earth empty, make it waste, scatter abroad its inhabitants. Now, I don't know exactly how God's going to do this, but I do know what it says and i do know that there's an awful lot of scientists roaming around the earth saying this is quite possible there's an article i believe is in last month's national geographic is talking about we now know almost with certainty that the core of the earth is liquid and it is spinning and it is that gyroscopic action that actually keeps the earth tilted on its axis, causes us to, to rotate it at the speed that we are right now, 22,000 miles an hour or so. You, you see, we, we, we now have a little understanding. And as they, they looked at the iron ore and the poles, they found out that the iron ore was actually magnetized And that there's a number of fault lines to where that seems to have shifted shifted and tilted. And one of the theories for the ice ages is that there was a polar shift. And so, could God just be saying, hey, I'm going to do what I did before? If you want to check that out, you can go to livescience.com or natgeo.com. Do a little reading there. It's very interesting. And basically, God is saying, look, if I wanted to stop the earth and throw you off of it, I could do that. If I wanted to slow it down just a little bit so that you aren't going to stay on by gravity anymore, I could do that too. God holds the universe in the span of his hand. And so when he decides he wants to make a move and take care of business, basically the Lord's saying, look, the world's upside down right now because of sin, but when I get involved, the world might actually be upside down. this unimaginable time of destruction that we call the time of Jacob's trouble, that Revelation 6 to 19 period called the tribulation, what Luke 21 and Matthew 24 describe in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. He says, and what will the signs of your coming be, was the, was the disciples' question. What, what, what will it be when you come again? when Jesus comes again, let's, let's be really clear on this. The first time he came as a babe in a manger, as a lamb to the slaughter. He came to give his life a ransom for many so that those who would believe on his name would be saved. He came to be killed. When he comes back, he's coming as a conquering king. He's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming with the deed of the earth in his hand and he is coming to deal with sin. He's not coming as the lamb the next time. He's coming as the warring king. The scripture says on his thigh was a name that no one knew save himself, but it said king of kings and Lord of lords. So when Jesus comes back, he's coming back as a warrior. The book of Revelation says that sword comes out of his mouth that his eyes are like flames of fire he's not coming back to institute some new way of being saved or to give people another you know methodology another dispensation if you another economy of how you can relate to god he's coming back to wipe out sin and to deal with mankind's rebellion and so the bible in saying that now gives us this incredibly clear picture of the conditions he's going to scatter the inhabitants of the earth he says no one will get away from it verses 2 through 3 no one people priest servant master maid mistress buyer seller lender borrower creditor debtor it doesn't matter if you're rich it doesn't matter if you're poor the land is going to be utterly emptied by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's going to say enough. As it stands right now, he's given us nearly 2,000 years of the age of grace. Time when a simple profession of faith in Jesus Christ, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's pretty simple. Once that happens, your life changes your mind is renewed, you're transformed. You begin to live for Christ real easy in that sense. It's a free gift given to us, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. Well, you see, God said, I gave you the free gift of faith to believe and to be saved, and you didn't want it. So when he comes back, He's coming with the other side of justice and judgment. He's coming with the other side of his character and his nature. He's not coming with that peaceable hand. He's coming to deal with those who are rebellious. And it's going to be hell on earth. Be like, no time that you want to be here, I can tell you that. Verse 4, the earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth itself is defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws and changed the ordinance and broken, there it is, the everlasting covenant. You see, the covenant that was made with Noah was not made with the Jewish people. They didn't exist yet. That was a covenant made with everybody. I want you all to be good to each other. I want you all to be kind to each other. I want you all to love each other. I want you to treat each other humanely. You see, the Noahic covenant was irrevocable because God made it and he said, this you shall do. This is what I expect. But mankind said, nah, don't like that. They broke that covenant. Not the Abrahamic one, that was to the Jewish people. The whole earth broke the covenant of Noah. You guys were violent before. You were continually evil before. And I'm telling you, see that rainbow? I'm not going to destroy the earth again. Next time I'm coming back, it's going to be you I'm going to destroy. My wrath is going to be poured out. You need to be good. Verse 6, therefore the curse has devoured the earth. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul in chapter 8 of the book of Romans writes that the very earth itself groans, agonizes to be set free from the bondage of sin. And those who dwell on it are desolate, and therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned. Few men are left. Now, I, you're probably saying, man, I, I, well, good thing I can turn this off. I don't have to listen to the rest of this because this is terrible. You're right, it is terrible. It's supposed to be terrible. It's supposed to be awful. It's supposed to strike fear into people's hearts. When you read this, you should be going, my goodness, why would God do that? Well, he tells you why he'll do it. You broke the covenant. You're you're continually evil again. You're unjust again. You murder innocent people again. You start wars again. You take advantage of your brother again. You see, the reason this is important is when you look at the world, you might want to be saying, hmm, the world's a mess. And so God's going to send Jesus back. The trumpet's going to sound. The church is going to be taken home. The dead in Christ reunited. Very few people are going to come out of that tribulation time and very, very few will go through it and come out saved on the other side. Verse 7, the new wine fails, the vine languishes, the merry-hearted sigh. In other words, they're like these are the same people that today it's like, man, well, we're going to have a... Can I just tell you something? You idiots who are having COVID parties, stop it. You're ruining it for the rest of us. This this is the way we're going right now. Oh, well, we'll just have a party. We'll take a couple of people who are already infected with COVID-19 and we'll, we'll put a pot together of money and whoever gets diagnosed with COVID first wins. You're morons. Am I clear? You're selfish little snots. The merry hearted will sigh. Oh, you think it's funny right now. It's like, ah, look what we did. Yeah, well, the rest of us are locked in our homes again because of people like you. I'm telling you, this is what is upsetting God. Forget that I don't like it. Don't tell me you had a COVID party. But think of what God's thinking. Here in L.A., 57 more people died today. 1,700 more went into intensive care, most of whom are on ventilators. And you all are going, "Eh, let's have a party. The mirth of the tambourine ceases. The noise of the jubilant ends. The joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink. Wine with a song or strong drink, for it is bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down and every house shut up so that none may go in. You see, what God is saying, if you take this whole party thing, this whole selfishness thing, and you run it out to the end, I'm going to come and deal with it myself. I'm going to send my son back as the lion of the tribe of Judah to clear this mess up. There's a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is dark and mirth and the land is gone. If I hear of another group of Christians taking up the cause of social drinking, and you go to this church, prepare to be excoriated by me personally. God says that this type of behavior is what he's going to send Jesus back for. The church needs to wake up. The city of desolation is left. The gate is stricken with destruction. When it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. He's saying there's no fruit left. There's none There's two olives and four grapes, and that's it. There's no fruit left. Do you remember what Jesus said? You have been created to bear fruit. Some fruit, more fruit, and much fruit, not no fruit. You weren't created by God to make no fruit. You were created to be fruitful. And when the church starts being unfruitful, when we stop concerning ourselves with the gospel and we take up every other cause that we can have as our cause du jour, the cause of the day, and we stop preaching the gospel and we stop teaching the word, get ready, because that is the great apostasy. When the church has lost its salt, when we're no longer the savor, when we do not bear the light of the world, the Lord's return is near. It's near. For they shall lift up their voice and they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry, cry aloud from the sea and therefore glorify the Lord in the dawning light. The name of the Lord God of Israel and the coastlands of the sea, from the ends of the earth, we have heard the songs, glory to the righteous. But I said, I am ruined, woe is me. For the treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. For indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of earth. This is very clearly tied to Revelation chapter 17, as the beast who was and is not will ascend out of the bottomless pit, and those who dwell on the earth will marvel. And those names who were not written in the book of life and the foundation of the world and the beast, those people are going into the pit. That's their end. And people are sitting around rejoicing about all this junk that we get to do. The perversion that exists in our world. I'm concerned. I'm concerned for those who have some of their life left to live. I'm concerned for my own children and their children. Because when I look at the world, I I can't see how there's much time left. Now you may say, well, Jeff, that's kind of doomsday. What does it say? I'm not making this up. This is from the book of Isaiah. We have an entire copy of this that was written before the time of Christ. Found in Dead Sea Scrolls. It's enshrined in the shrine of the book in Jerusalem. God wrote this. You see, when the world becomes like this, you better look up. The Redeemer's coming. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus himself speaks about the days of the tribulation being a a great snare. And he talks about in that same passage, gluttony and drunkenness and the cares of this world. And he also speaks of a great earthquake. Now notice what comes next in verse 18. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows from on high are open and the foundation of the earth are shaken. You know, I've been around for a few earthquakes. and Wonderfully, I can tell you, I wasn't here for the great San Francisco earthquake in 1906. Killed 3,000 people, burned four square miles of San Francisco in the fire afterwards. Pretty bad. They think it was between 7.9, maybe 8.3 at the most. But I was alive for the Loma Prieta earthquake. Watched the same city devastated again as the freeway stacks, pancaked one on top of another, caused $5.9 billion in damage. I was alive for the Northridge earthquake. I remember that photo of that CHP officer that drove off the end of the overpass that had crunched and fallen off. It was up in the mountains for the Landers earthquake. I've been around for a few earthquakes. We really never had one here that's much over, maybe 7.5 or something, 6, I don't know. That's just a localized quake. Maybe we finally get one, the big one that's supposed to make us an island. You know, we're going to slide into the ocean. You'll be able to get beachfront property in Arizona, as they say. Your Bible says there's going to come a point in time when it's not just going to shake Los Angeles. This is going to just shake parts of California. It isn't going to shake the western coast of the United States. It isn't just going to shake on an earthquake fault. God himself is going to throttle the earth. He's going to shake everything that we hold dear loose. Everything. There will be nothing left untouched. Sometimes I look at the skyscrapers downtown and it's like, man, I would not want to be in one of those things when it starts shaking even on the San Andreas or our local fault here. Got two or three of them right here in the South Bay. Imagine when, when God says, verse 19, the earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. And then if that's not enough, he says the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and totter like a hut, because its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. He's talking about the earth. You're not talking about California. We're not talking about someplace in Iran. We're not talking about an earthquake fault in the Dolomites in the northern part of Italy. He's saying the whole earth will be violently broken and split open and the earth shaken exceedingly and reeling to and fro like a drunkard and tottering like a hut because of the transgression. That word transgression is interesting. The violation of God's covenant with Noah. Noah. That internal law that all of us know and the external law that God himself gave that is visible for most people if they care to look. In other words, the totality of what can be known about God now is greater than it's ever been. And God says, eventually, I'm just going to cause this earth to start to wobble, and again, there's some serious science on polar motion that's being done, and we, we now know that about every year or so the earth shifts about four inches, moves about eleven yards over the course of a century. If that goes to twenty yards, it's enough to throw the earth completely out of balance. So God just says, No, nope, I'm done. Earth's gonna wobble to and fro like a drunkard and fall over. Now you're probably going man now I'm really depressed that I tuned in tonight well if it's shaking you up a little bit praise God I'm glad if it's caused you to get out of your little bubble a little bit hallelujah thank you Jesus if it's caused you to pause and ask yourself well what really matters on this earth thank you Lord because I believe that's the reason this is here. While there's still hearing of these words, while there's still the age of grace in existence, which there is, while you can still come to faith in Christ one at a time by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved, committing your life to his lordship and walking with it, while there's still time for that, then there's still hope that you do not have to go through this. But there is going to be a group of people where they're going to go through this. Not going to be me. Not going to be my family. It isn't going to be most of the people I know, actually, now that I think about it. At least those that I know personally. And I don't want you to be here either. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 says this, For we say this to you by the word of the Lord then we who are alive and remain, that would be us tonight who are still here. Every last person, the we there is believers, Christians, those who have named the name of the Lord, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, those who are already dead and have gone on before us to heaven. For the Lord himself, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Praise God. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo, the Latin word raptura, raptured. Snatched away by force together. Together. With them. With who? Everybody that's gone on before. Where? Not on the earth. In the clouds. That's why we know this is the rapture. Because when Jesus comes at the second coming, he comes back to earth. He doesn't come to the clouds. He comes directly to the earth. Matter of fact, he puts his feet down on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two. together with them in the clouds, to meet them in the air. And thus we shall be always with the Lord. And therefore, comfort one another with these words. You're a believer tonight. Be comforted with these words. If you know Jesus tonight, be comforted with these words. If you don't, then you should be asking yourself some pretty serious questions right now. Because if this is true, and we don't know when the Lord's going to return, he said, no one will know the day or the hour when the Son of Man comes. That's what Jesus said. So I don't know when it is, so don't ask me. I don't know. But he did tell us what the signs of the times would be. And those signs, pretty clearly to me, are on us. They're here. Now, Am I telling you that I heard the church is going to get raptured next week? No, you did not hear me say that. Next month, next year, I don't know. But I can tell you when I look at the earth and I see the injustice, I see the lying and the thievery, the rampant pornographic nature of the entire world, the despicable governments, the despotic governments that exist that are taking advantage of citizens everywhere, when i see the level of hatred that exists in our own country when i watch people saying the things that they say in the news media about other human beings i can say to you mm, i don't think we got that much time i don't i don't know how long that time is but i know what the apostle paul says one chapter later in chapter 5 for God did not appoint us to wrath. Who's the us? That's those who know the Lord. Why? Because Romans chapter 1 says, Because of this, because of the unrepentant sin, the godlessness, that God will one day pour out his wrath on this earth, he has saved me from that wrath By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on Calvary's cross, paying the price for my sin, forgiving that sin so that the weight of that sin is no longer on me. And if he's going to pour out the wrath, I'm no longer deserving of it because of Jesus, not because of me. I I don't plan to be here when all this stuff happens. I won't be. Do I deserve to be here? Yes, I do. Like all human beings, I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in my humanness and my flesh, there's none, there's none righteous, including me. But by his grace, I've been set free from the penalty of sin and death. I will one day be resurrected unto new life. I know that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And so God didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Part of salvation is eternal life in Christ Jesus and the dismissal of the justice that should be extricated from my flesh, which should be death and hell. Through the Lord Jesus, who died for us, that whether we wake, whether we sleep, we should live together with him. And it shall come to pass, verse 21 says... In that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of the exalted ones. Check this out. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 14 reminds us that Satan himself was an exalted cherub. Book of Revelation reminds us that when Satan fell, he drug with him the host of heaven. God's going to punish the host of exalted ones on the earth, the kings of the earth. He's going to deal with the despotic governments. He's going to deal with the hellish hosts. He's going to take care of that which we wrestle against, which is not flesh and blood, but against spiritual entities in high places, principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us. This judgment that's here. Belongs on demonic forces and evil men, and that's it. People without Christ, beings that failed to yield to Christ. And they will gather together, verse 22 says, as prisoners are gathered into the pit, and they will be shut up in prison, and after many days they will be punished. Now this is where we know that there are two places that those who don't know the Lord will have spent time. One is the abuso. Previously known as two compartments, Abraham's bosom and paradise. The abode of the dead. But notice what it says. They'll be in prison, but after many days, they'll be punished. In other words, there's some place that's worse than the abode of the dead, the abuso. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3 says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great, you getting excited, chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the abuso, the bottomless pit, and shut him up. And set a seal upon him so that he should not deceive the nations anymore till a thousand years were finished. But notice what it says after these things, he must be released for a little while. What does Isaiah 24, 22 say? And after many days, that word there could be a time, they will be punished. Who's the they? the angelic host that is demonic, the fallen angel, Satan himself. Satan is going to be bound. He's going to be put into the pit. But one day, Satan's going to be released. And you're going, why would God do something like this? He's already got him chained up. It's like, come on, man. God's got this other new plan, and it's, it's awesome. The Lord's going to take care of him, Finally there's an interesting little thing and it adds to the glory of the rapture as far as I'm concerned. Because not everyone who is on this earth is going to be raptured. There are going to be people who are going to stay here. Jesus himself said two people will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. But they will get a chance still. Still. Even once the church is gone, but it's going to cost them their life. It likely will cause them to be martyred, especially in the first half of the tribulation. But some are going to make it. Some are going to be what we would call tribulation saints. They're going to withstand the horrors of the Antichrist. And during the millennial reign, after Jesus comes again, and puts Satan in the pit, deals with evil, and there's a thousand years where the rule of iron, the peace of the Lord Jesus, ruling from Mount Zion in Jerusalem, sitting on David's throne, once that happens, you're going to have some babies that were born during that time from people who still have a sin nature because they we're not taken to heaven yet. They received Christ during the tribulation. And so they're still going to have what we will no longer have having come from heaven. And those children will need to make a choice. Just like you have to make a choice tonight. To either receive and believe and be saved or to reject and be condemned. And so Satan gets one last go at the children of those tribulation saints. And then those followers of the enemy, exactly what is alluded to in verse 22, will be finally punished. They'll end up in Gehenna or hell. That is a place that Jesus said is outer darkness. It's weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. It is complete separation from everything that is light, all that is God, every bit of goodness. Nothing but evil exists in that place. I don't know where it is. My guess it's beyond the reaches of our known universe. Because it's complete darkness. There's no light whatsoever. It's utter darkness is what Jesus says. And there, those who reject the gospel will spend eternity. Now, if that doesn't scare you, if you don't know Jesus, you should be shaking in your shoes right now. That's why it's here. It's meant to terrify you, to call into question who you serve, who you are as a person. In verse 23, it says, and then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. Why? Check this out. Because they will no longer be the brightest lights in the sky. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem before his elders gloriously. Hallelujah. no more death, no more dying, no more tears, no more pain, no more sin. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. You're listening to this message and you don't know Jesus. You can know him right now. If you will believe on him, if you will simply say, Jesus I don't know who you are, but I want to know you. He will reveal himself. If you will seek him with all of your heart, you will find him. He'll give you faith to believe. He came to this earth as a babe, and he died on Calvary's cross as a man. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he left this earth, he told his disciples, I'm going away for a time but I'm coming again. You can know King Jesus, the one who will be the sun. Not just the S-O-N, but the S-U-N. The one who will light our very world. He will be the light of the world in, in totality one day. You can know him personally by simply inviting him into your life to forgive your sin, to give you a new heart, and to cause you to walk in his ways. If you'll just invite him in. It's all you have to do. There's pastors online right now that will pray with you. I'll share the good news of the gospel with you again. Don't miss this opportunity because I do not know how much time we have, but I don't think it's much. And so don't waste it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. But we thank you for your terror too. Lord, we thank you for, for that sword of Damocles that hangs over the entirety of humanity, stretched out by a thread that one day it will snap because of the weight of sin. And Lord, we ask and invite you to change hearts tonight. I know that there are some listening that don't know you. Holy Spirit, fall afresh on them. Convince them of the truth of these words. Lord, not my words, your words. Your word says, if we will believe in you, we'll be saved. Or I believe. I believe you are who you said you are. You're God's own son. You came in human flesh. You lived a perfect sinless life. You died in my place on Calvary's cross. And you were risen three days later. And you right now are in heaven making intercession for me. I believe this, Lord believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit I believe that you are three in one and I believe you're coming again convince of the truth of the gospel, save many I pray and make those of us who walk with you Lord in tune with your spirit in these last days strengthen us for the days that are ahead cause us to be the church Lord We may be locked in, but we are not locked out from serving you. And so, Lord, find us divine appointments. Save the lost. Strengthen the weak. Encourage the strong to be stronger. And we pray even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message.